Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Faye Johnstone, who is the Executive Director of Wisdom to Action. This month there are Pride events around Guelph, and Pride events are all about promoting visibility and acceptance for our LGBTQ plus community. We know that there's a lot of community spirit for our queer friends and neighbors. We try to welcome them as active and visible members of our community, but while the Pride movement has come a long way, there is still yet a long way for it to go until we achieve complete equity. Consider healthcare, for example. It might surprise you to know that for many trans people in Ontario, getting their basic health care needs met is a struggle, let alone getting access to procedures and treatments that they might need if they are in the process of transitioning. We like to think of our health care system as barrier-free here in Canada, but the barriers for trans people can be immense. And that is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Consider this. The most recent Health and Well-Being Among Non-Binary People report from Transpulse Canada last summer said that one-third of non-binary people in Canada had a primary health care provider who has no knowledge about trans or non-binary health needs. On top of that, one in four reported that they do not have access to in-person spaces specifically for non-binary people. Only 47% said they were comfortable discussing their non-binary health concerns with their doctor, and 59% said that they were misgendered at least once daily. On top of that, only 16% of non-binary people said that they had all their medical needs met, and 30% said that they felt unsure about even seeking care. Think about your trips to the doctor. Have you ever felt unsure about getting medical attention if you need it? It's a consideration for many trans people, and it's one of the reasons why New Democratic MPP Suze Morrison brought a private member's bill called the Gender Affirming Healthcare Advisory Committee Act to the Ontario Legislature. It directs the Minister of Health to create an advisory committee to review gender-affirming healthcare in Ontario and come up with a list of recommendations to improve access and coverage for trans people which, compared to other provinces in Canada, Ontario is lagging behind on. Notably, Bill 17 passed second reading unanimously in the legislature, but there's an election coming up in June, which means time is working against everyone that wants to see it become law. And one of those people is Faye Johnstone, whose organization Wisdom to Action is a social enterprise and consulting firm specializing in community engagement, creative facilitation, research and evaluation, knowledge mobilization, and equity, diversity, and inclusion. So Johnstone will lend us their considerable expertise in those areas on this edition of the Guelph Politicast. Johnstone will talk about the specific barriers to health care facing trans people in Canada, the struggles they face if they're able to secure health care, and the places in Canada doing trans health care better than many places in Ontario. We also discuss the different health needs for trans youth versus trans adults, the economic barriers to health care that many trans people face, and whether there is such a thing as systemic transphobia in health care. And finally, we will talk about the odds that Bill 17 will become law before the election, how the fight for trans rights continues, and there will be a very timely question about the importance of accessing trans stories in school libraries. So I caught up with Faye Johnstone last week via Zoom. So, uh, Faye Johnstone, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess the simplest way to sort of lay this out is to just, 
you know, to ask this question, is there a difference in treatment um, when a trans person enters the hospital to, for, for some medical assistance versus me or as a cis male or somebody who's a cis female? Like, is, is there like, th- does the inequity kind of start right at when you go into the hospital or go into the doctor's office? I, I think writ large, yes. Um, we know that trans folks when interacting with healthcare uh, still tend to experience uh, either you know, issues of discrimination ranging from misgendering to like othering to you know, invasive questions about their health, about their bodies, about their transitions. Um, there are you know, many shining examples of healthcare providers and hospitals that are leading the charge on trans inclusion and trans health. Uh, but nonetheless, we know that most trans folks uh, have personal experiences of negative interactions in health contexts, which is really unfortunate. Uh, are there examples you can give just to sort of give people an idea of what that sort of experience looks like? Yeah, so there's there's a number. So I mean, uh, if you're imagining, you know, walking into an emergency room, let's say you have like an upset stomach, right? So it's got nothing to do with being trans. You're just like kind of feeling icky and you want to talk to a doctor about it. Um, You know, you arrive, you walk in the room and uh, you go and you do the whole check-in process. And then a few minutes later, they read or call you up uh, to come back up to the intake desk. And over the intercom, you hear a name that you no longer use. And you, you know, probably may have told the person that you use a different name, but they didn't actually put it into your record. And so now in, uh, uh, while you're struggling with the stomach ache, um, you are now having an old name, a dead name, as we call it, you know, played out uh, for all to hear. And you're maybe sitting there and maybe your name is Erica and they're loudly calling for a James and you don't necessarily look like a James. And then everyone in the room kind of looks at you a little bit strangely as you walk up to that intake desk. And there's just a negative moment um, and a negative, you know, shame that comes up in that moment as people look at you and think, oh, that person looks weird. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, a very like simple example, but we also know, um, you know, other examples could be um, a doctor who has never met a trans person and maybe using language like, you know, transgendered or hermaphrodite even or transsexual or, um, you know, has all of these weird ideas about your body. Um, ideas, they might ask questions around like, you know, are you um, mentally well? Are you, um, like ideas that are pushed around trans people being, you know, um, crazy or, or, you know, not being just another person who just also happens to be trans. And so a lot of the time uh, it's those moments where folks are, are not aware of the fact that trans people are people and treat us like this strange anomaly that needs to be investigated and unpacked. Is that a generational thing, like older doctors versus younger doctors? I, I think I think there's a piece of it there. We know that doctors are getting you know a bit more training around gender and sexuality than they used to. Um, but I also think it would be a naive of us to imagine that the next generation of doctors are, are, are immensely better. Um, mm-hmm. Most doctors don't learn much about gender and learn even less about trans health. And so a lot of the time, um, trans folks are still experiencing you know negative care um, from even younger providers, but there is definitely, I think, a bit of a generational thing in there, too. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to Bill 17, the the Gender-Affirming Healthier Advocacy Committee Act. Um, So we'll just say Bill 17 for short. Uh, (laughs) uh, How does that propose to change things? I know it's not your legislation, but you are advocating for it. So, um, uh, you know, how, how how would that help to start to improve things? So one of the biggest issues we have in Ontario is that uh, our province hasn't 
uh, continued. So we, you know, historically, Ontario has been a leader on trans health. We were uh, we protected gender identity and gender expression uh, earlier than many provinces had. Uh, but a lot of that effort has has kind of plateaued. It hasn't continued. And so what that means is that as our medical evidence around trans health has improved, as we've recognized other procedures as medically necessary. Um, our policy in Ontario hasn't mirrored those shifts in evidence and science. And so Bill 17, very simply, is a bill that would form an advisory committee. That advisory committee would be mandated to review everything about trans health, including Ontario policy and procedure, international best practices, and identify recommendations for the Minister of Health and the Ministry of Health on how to improve trans health care in this province. One of the biggest things is that no one is actually paying attention to trans health. Mm -hmm. Many trans folks uh, have negative experiences with care. The wait times to get access to something like hormones, let alone referrals for surgical interventions, are often multiple years. Uh, we know that the sooner trans people get access to medication, the better for their mental health and well-being writ large. And so Bill 17 is in hope for or will hopefully um, get this back on the provincial agenda and get the Ministry of Health to recognize that trans folks do actually need access to healthcare and that there are barriers in place that, that do discriminate against us every time we walk into a hospital. Also, just generally access, because, I mean, I don't know how it is everywhere, but um, the only place in Guelph that has sort of specialized health services for trans people is our uh, HIV AIDS sort of awareness group and but they do a lot of outreach to a lot of marginalized communities but if you're trans and you're looking for a safe place to get your health concerns addressed that's kind of where you have to go and so that's what we see in, in, in most cities across Ontario right now. We have like nuggets of incredible success right we have an Ottawa we have Centertown Community Health Center we have uh, CHEO, our Children's Hospital, Sick Kids in Toronto is doing incredible work. Uh, but the issue is that those clinics are not able to meet the needs of all of the trans folks. And there are a lot of us out there. Um, the responsibility for trans healthcare is actually on our family doctors. It's on primary care. So one of the biggest things that we need is primary care physicians to recognize that and recognize that delivering hormones and supporting trans patients to navigate gender affirming healthcare is right in their purview. It is within their scope. They need to step up and take it on. But that's not a universal standard. Like it's entirely possible that my personal physician could, you know, make trans health part of their practice and your personal physician does not. And, th and that means that a trans person needs to, you know, ha has, it's, it's, a, it's a, a risk every time, right? You might go to your doctor and say, I need access. And your doctor might say, like, never, I'm not even helping you with that. Or they might say, I'm going to send you to this place that has a three-year wait list. And right. then the doctor never talks about it again, never deals with any of it, and just pretends that it's not their job. Well, it is their job. Um, but we need them to know, and we need them to be trained, right? We don't, nobody wants a primary care physician to just, like, jump into trans health and pretend they're an expert um, but we do need providers to get themselves educated and there is easy access to that education we have rainbow health ontario in this province you can get trained up and you can provide this care but you need to take the first step as a physician so in, in taking all that it really makes it sound like bill 17 is like the beginning of something not the end is that kind of where, where you're at yeah, Bill 17 is, is, is our best opportunity at the moment. Um, there is the reality is that our Ministry of Health could make these changes at any point. It is 
uh, recognized as medically necessary care. It is in alignment with meta, like with international best practice, um, but it's not on their radar. And so the hope for Bill 17 is that it can, it can begin a process, that it can push our province to recognize trans health and recognize that it needs more work. I mean, it's a strong beginning because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it passed second reading and went to committee unanimously. So no one stood against it. Um, yes. But having said that, there is a, a kind of sand clock running out uh, because there, there is an election coming sometime in the next couple of months. I guess, you know, maybe in your discussions with uh, MPPs and, and people in government, you know, what's what's the status of the bill and what are the odds that it's it can be given royal assent before uh, the election is called? So unfortunately, right now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think we are our main worry is that it will not make its way to committee. A lot of private members bills will make it through first and second reading and then they will go uh, to committee to die in committee. <laughs> and so our worry right now is that the committee, as far as we know, is not planning to call the bill. Uh, what that means is that they're just going to let it sit there and they're going to like not deal with it uh, until there is an election called, which then will, of course, put us back on uh, on ground zero. Right. And so we'll have to build up again and reintroduce the bill after the next election. Um, so I think, you know, our push right now very much is it's the government who is able to decide what gets called to committee. The chair is uh, progressive conservative. And so we need that chair and this government to prioritize Bill 17. The, again, it won't. It's it's not a risky piece of legislation. It's literally a bill to create an advisory committee. I do not understand why this government uh, isn't able to just recognize that a conversation isn't going to hurt anybody or commit them to anything, but that that bill will trigger an important process for trans people in this province. You know, you're you're correct. A conversation is not going to hurt anything. But I, I would point out that there are groups, uh, some of whom have been supportive of the progressive conservative government in the past, who very much think, and, and you know this, who think a conversation is a dangerous thing to have. And so that's the, I think there is a, there is a moment coming upon us where the progressive conservatives are going to have to wrangle with where do they stand? Um, Christine Elliott has been a long-standing champion of trans rights in this country. Um, she helped ensure that we had safe, a, a safe schools act. She helped protect gender identity and gender expression. She championed many LGBTQ rights causes. And so I, I am hoping um, that their party will recognize that they have more to gain by supporting human rights uh, than to lose um, by supporting far right groups that are opposed to my human, my existence, my rights, uh, my safety. And I think that uh, they need to make a stand. And actually, Bill 17 is a great opportunity for them to show where they stand on trans rights. I like to play the what if game sometimes. So let's talk about if the government really wanted to make a stand. What what could I mean, what are some basic things that would improve you know, health access for trans people in Ontario that the government can do and probably maybe, maybe even do uncontroversially and get support from opposition parties. I think if, if this government was to table um, or, or put trans health on the agenda, honestly, the, the first thing, and the Yukon already did this, they just amended their trans health coverage to align with WPATH, World, the World Professional Association for Trans Health, the international experts, uh, to align with their standards. So the best thing that our government could do is actually ignore Bill 17 and just pass legislation or amend health coverage to include medically necessary trans health care. That would be a, a game changer for us. Um, beyond that, there is, you know, there are practical issues, right? So we, we do need funding and support to 
educate more physicians, to educate more primary care providers, and we need services or funding to support the gender clinics we already have in place. So again, like Centertown Community Health Center's trans health program, it has a two-year wait list. If they had substantial, if they had next to any significant funding from this province, uh, the province could significantly improve access to care in like over the course of several months, just by stabilizing our existing services. Is this one of those things that it might be easier to to have those discussions if there wasn't a global pandemic right now? That if you know there, there was a bit there was a bit more you know room in the health sphere to talk about issues other than containing COVID nineteen, you could probably make some of that progress. Yes, I think the pandemic is adding like unpleasant layers to all of this. We also know that the pandemic has delayed access to medication for a lot of trans folks. So trans folks, due to shortages, due to supply issues, haven't been able to access hormones. Uh, and that is not, uh, that that has a negative impact on their health. If you're on hormones, you're supposed to be taking your hormones regularly. Um, and so there's also, you know, physicians are tired. And so working in this space, it's a juggle of, I want these physicians to recognize that trans health is within their purview. But Lord, I, I feel like my heart goes out to nurses, to social workers, to, uh, to physicians writ large, because they are managing in a global pandemic. So I think I'm, I have a lot of patience for them and a lot less patience for our provincial government. Fair enough. It, it just, I, I, I am curious. Uh, we hear a lot about like surgical black uh, backlog, procedural backlogs. Does it worry you that perhaps trans health becomes another health issue that's backlogged when, when and if all of this is over? Yes. And we're seeing, we're seeing that, right? Like, so imagine, you know, before the pandemic, you already had horror, like overly like extensive wait times, right? So again, two years at, at Centertown, um, the wait times for surgical procedures can be much longer. And so then imagine two years where most folks haven't been able to get those surgeries, where you have two years worth of other trans folks who are coming out, coming into themselves. I am terrified that post-COVID, in a world where there is a post-COVID, I am terrified that we will see skyrocketing wait times and that our, we'll, again, that has you know, trans folks improve on a mental health level when they have access to these interventions. And the worst thing for their mental health, and we, one of the worst things, really is being stuck on a wait list for care that you know you need, that you know you have a right to, uh, that is not being afforded to you. That is a horrible place for someone to be stuck. It's the same thing, like in mental health, um, you know, being on a wait list for care is a horrible experience because you're sitting there suffering when you need services. And so we, we need to tackle the wait list issue more than anything else. And we probably should point out that um, there is still an economic barrier. We're talking about services that aren't always necessarily covered by OHIP as well. So that adds an yeah, extra so one of the Yeah. One of the main things that we're hoping for in Bill 17 is, is to uh, table expansion of trans health coverage. So uh, a lot of times for things like top surgery, so removal of breast tissue, um, folks still have to pay out of pocket to get contouring on their chest to masculinize their chests. Um, a lot of the procedures that I might want access to, like facial feminization surgery, would cost me probably like twenty dollars to $40,000. Trans folks are systemically more likely to be poor. Very few of us have twenty dollars to $40,000 we can just throw at a healthcare provider. And so we, it has a significant economic impact on trans people not to have access to these surgeries because we are having to pay for them out of pocket when we're already struggling to pay rent. Nobody should have to choose between paying rent and getting access to medically necessary health care. 
I mean, and and that I, there, there's kind of the snake eating its tail, right? Because perhaps you're you're struggling with mental health on these, you know, waiting to get access to services. Services cost money. Money doesn't grow on trees. <laughs> it's 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 just uh, you know, it's I can't imagine how tough it is. And it's, it's also like, so if you imagine like a lot of trans people have a hard time getting jobs, they yeah. have a hard time getting jobs. Cause imagine, you know, you're a customer service, you're working at, you've got a shoppers and you have a gender non-conforming trans person walk in and that shoppers is going to probably be less likely to hire you because they're going to know that maybe the uh, client base will interact weirdly with them. And mm -hmm. so you very much have an, uh, a context where trans folks struggle to get employed, thereby are more likely to be stuck in low-wage jobs, are struggling with their mental health, or on wait lists, or trying to pay rent while saving up for medically necessary care. And it is a perfect storm of bad outcomes. Well, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? I mean, it's we hear a lot about um, outreach to the trans community and the, the, the more the broader LGBTQ plus community. Uh, people add the, the trans flag to their social media profile. But, you know, it's in, in these like very serious personal issues, um, there just hasn't been that much movement. We really have a very big difference between what we see as representation and what real equality means, right? And, and, and this country, we, we really love the big symbols, right? We really love to say we pass, we, we've gotten gay rights, woohoo, we've passed marriage equality. Well, you know, marriage equality didn't end homophobia. I have friends who are still afraid to walk outside holding their partner's hands. Like, right. we still have systemic homophobia in this country and systemic transphobia. Um, the idea that posting a selfie during Pride as an elected official is, like, the be-all and end-all of allyship is laughable and honestly hurtful. It's it's harmful to see these folks who think they can post a little picture and then be in positions of power where they know that trans people are suffering and do nothing. It is, it is the, it is horrifying, disappointing more than anything else. You said systemic transphobia, which was literally a word I, I had written down in my notes here. Um, Cause I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure if that was kind of like a, a kosher way to phrase things, but how much of what kind of, the barriers that our trans people are facing. And, and we talk about uncomfortable conversations a lot with systemic racism, but here's another area where to, to leap over that transphobic wall, maybe there are some more conversations that have uh, more uncomfortable conversations that have to be had. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks don't like it. Like the public has an idea of, of LGBTQ communities as largely being, you know, cisgender white gay men. Well, cisgender white gay men still need support and still got a lot going on. We need interventions around mental health, around sexual health. There's a lot there. Um, but I'm still afraid to go outside. Like that is a very significant fear that a lot of trans folks have. I have been followed in public spaces. I have had people grab me, harass me in too many horrifying ways. People in this province and in this country don't realize that most trans people are still afraid to go outside because we're afraid that we're going to be harassed. And that is the everyday for a lot of trans people. Or, I mean, more than that, people might see you as like a mascot. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of another form of othering, even though it comes from maybe a place of trying to be inclusive. Yeah, like like the I, I get a range in public. There's like a lot of folks are, are, are great and fine and just like go about their business. Um, a lot of folks, one of the main things that I notice is is that you get noticed more and not even in a good or bad way. But I can't go anywhere just to like pick up, you know, 
a snack at the convenience store. Every time I'm in public space, I can see people looking at me, looking at me often with a look of like, oh, what or who is that? Mm. And those are like, you know, those those experiences are, are low on the spectrum of like unpleasantness. I can put up with them. But those experiences are also every day. And every day, it's not just both. It's also those five people who maybe look at you a little bit stranger or maybe make a face or maybe laugh at you and make a joke to their friend as they walk by. What message does that send to us? It sends a message that we shouldn't be allowed in public space, that we are, are not tolerable in public space. And that is a really, really horrible message to tell someone. I mean, having said all of that, are, are you kind of hopeful? I mean, how far we've come in, in terms of progress and maybe how, how far we might go in, in the not too distant future. Uh, if, you know, even not openly hostile negative reactions, you know, can, can still like cause trans people discomfort. It's, you know, we're kind of in this weird purgatory from, from the way you described it. Yeah, I do. Like I, I, I am a cynic at heart um, and a realist <laughs> and I, I do, I have a hard time like thinking of a better tomorrow, but I, I do have a bit of optimism in me. Um, I think we've got a federal government that has been stepping up on, on some aspects of 2SLGBTQ rights and inclusion. Um, I think that we are, you know, seeing society change. Um, but at the same time, like we're seeing attacks on trans kids' rights in the UK and in the US right now. And my fear is that uh, we're going to think that that won't come here. It is already coming here. It has already been here. It has always been here. And so I think I'm, I'm struck, like stuck with the, I don't want us to rest on our laurels. Uh, while also recognizing that, yeah, uh, I, I am a, my ability to exist and to be in public space is, is due to the work of trans folks who've come before making our environment safer. Uh, I don't get thrown out of stores when I go shopping. Uh, that isn't a thing that many generations of trans folks before me could have experienced. The, the privilege of being able to simply go into a store without having to worry is a demonstration of progress. Uh, but I would you know, I still have to worry. <laughs> right. A lot of this, you know, the, the, the blowback you're talking about, I mean, it kind of comes from a place of uh, people wanting to, I guess, be, it comes from the whole free expression debate, right? There's a lot of talk about that and what books to read. And we've seen some of that in, in, in this area too. Uh, I, I guess, I don't know how much you heard about the Waterloo Region school board debate, um, but for trans people, I mean, having access to books, having access to materials where they can see and, and read about people like them who have questions and are going through some of the same struggles. I mean, what does what does that mean to people in the community? I didn't know trans people existed until I was like 18, 19. Um, I didn't know that, that transness was an option. I knew there was something going on with me, but I didn't know quite what it was. And there weren't any role models or examples. Um, one of the best things like, so I, I have trans people in my life who are like in their late teens who, and I'm the oldest trans person they've ever met. I am 26. I am not that old. No. And the idea that like, there are still teens coming up who've got no conception of a, tr of a trans person, let alone a successful one. Every single book we can get in schools about trans identity makes a difference. It has an impact and it creates a generation of trans kids who see themselves in the world, but it also teaches really important lessons to cis kids that yeah. trans people are good people, that we are brilliant, resilient, that we have value to bring to our communities. And that message to those cis kids is, a, is just as important as representation for trans kids. 
uh, it sends the message too that if you have a a coast another student in your class who's trans they're not weird because uh, here's a book with a, a trans character yeah, and so the, the worry for me is, you know, these these issues like the, the Waterloo School Board, even the Halton, I would have loved more coverage of the Halton. Like, it's, it's interesting to me when I see, you know, right wing media jumping on the Waterloo issue when they're silent to the explicit bigotry that came out of Halton Catholic School Board. Um, but within all of that, uh, we're, we're talking about the wrong issues. It, it's, it's horrendous that, uh, you know, imagine the trans kid in Waterloo or in Halton who has to read about their their rights being under attack has to read about and, and has to deal wake up every morning and see that and then go to school and worry and maybe have a teacher say something or a student say something homophobic or transphobic mm. the conversation in our schools has to be how do we make schools more accepting and more inclusive uh, but that there are actors out there who are trying to turn everything into a story about trans people causing problems and that is disingenuous and harmful i think that's such a great point that 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 does seem to be the story a lot trans people are causing problems other than you know the the, the system is causing problems for trans people and it, it's, it's important to look at how, how issues are are phrased sometimes and in, in the way we in the media cover. i can line up like any journalist who wants to chat with me i can line up trans folks who can talk about their harmful experience in schools i can line up trans kids who are still being discriminated against the story is not free speech the story is homophobia and transphobia is ruining the lives of our kids yeah Maybe to wrap up, um, I can ask, I'm, I'm going to ask you to s- sort of going back to the healthcare issue in a perfect world, perhaps years in the future after bill 17 is law. And we've, we've kind of been able to have these conversations and, and, and given doctors the, this extra training. Um, what does, you know, what does a visit to the doctor's office look like? What is a, like a positive health care experience? For trans people, what does it look like? And, and, you know, how do they leave satisfied that they've gotten the the help and the services they need? What does that look like? Honestly, it, it looks like every other cis person's experience with healthcare, right? You go to your doctor, you, you talk, you have a good relationship with your doctor. They're respectful. They use your name. They describe you accurately. They don't ask weird, creepy, invasive questions and you get whatever healthcare you need. At the end of the day, like we're not looking for, you know, special or fancy treatment. We're looking to just get the kind of healthcare that everybody else is afforded. That to me, like the ideal scenario is just where I can go to my family doctor and say like, hey, I'm a person. Can you like give me my annual checkup? And where if I need to, I can talk about hormones or I can talk about trans health without having to worry. And while feeling like my doctor knows what I'm saying and I don't need to spend the next three hours giving a, what does it mean to be trans lecture? Right. Trans people are people. It sounds simple, but uh, getting there is kind of the hardest <laughs> the hardest exactly. part of all yeah but you're you're trying in Faye Johnstone I appreciate all your expertise and your time today and and uh and we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh bill 17 gets over the finish line before election day <laughs> and thank you so much for having me on today it's been a pleasure and once again that was Faye Johnstone bill 17 otherwise known as the Gender Affirming Healthcare Advisory Committee Act, is presently in committee at the Ontario Legislature. You can learn more about John Stone's organization, Wisdom 2 Action, at wisdom2action.org. You can also see the biannual updates for the health and well-being among non-binary people in Canada at transpulsecanada.ca. 
And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you this time next week. And until then, we will see you next time.